Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. You made it. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to everyone watching online. Good morning to everyone in Port Mary, and good evening to everyone in Bowmanville. Once again, let's give them a hand. We're just so glad that you, again, are joining us uh, this evening. If there's one thing that gets people fired up in our culture, it is food. We love it. We like it. We hate it. We argue about it. We make sure that we post what we're eating on Instagram. We spend time longing for it. We we share it. We debate it. There are whole networks that run 24 hours a day talking about food. Beat Bobby, anyone? Flay, the Barefoot Contessa. You got to eat here. It goes on and on. Why do I know that people are intense about food? Because every time I mention it from the pulpit, we almost have a church split in multiple locations. I say candy corn. Suddenly I'm attacked on social media for days and weeks and months. I say cilantro and then there's communities turning on each other. I just said pineapple pizza once and suddenly there was emojis of anger and fire. I didn't even get to spicy food. Side note, Indian food will be in heaven. I just want to share that, just to say that out loud. Now, I think I've maybe shared this before. My mother wants to like Indian food and she can't like it. She just, it doesn't work. And I have reassured her in the resurrection, God will heal her taste buds, and all will be complete. Amen to the Indian people out there, right? Like so fantastic. But we just are so intense about food, Mexican, Italian, uh, Indian, etc., etc. Now you're like, John, why are you having such a foodie moment this morning? Well, let me tell you why. Paul has talked through in the last few weeks with us sex and marriage, divorce and remarriage and singleness and being single again, but now we have a food problem. He's almost like we got to pick up that hot potato, no pun intended. See, another battle was brewing in the church, gathering in Corinth, and this time the fight was over meat. And you're like, I'm sorry, John. Did you just say that the church is splitting over meat? Is this like a barbecue battle? Is this sort of like dry rub versus sauce? Side note, it's always sauce. No. Is this like a vegan versus a vegetarian versus the meatitarian showdown? No. But it actually is a real fight over meat. And the church, 2,000 years ago, meeting in Corinth, is divided over the issue of meat. Now, here's the lowdown, because you're sitting here this morning going, I only thought we divided over organs, pews, and what color the carpet was. I never thought meat was a problem. Well, first of all, meat was a delicacy. Most people in Corinth were vegetarians, not because they wanted to be, but meat was a money deal. It was a wealthy deal. They could never imagine our life today where you could have meat three times a day and not even think about it. So only the wealthy usually had access to meat, and the poor usually would only get meat during holidays. And the issue was the holidays were always connected to idols and demons. So if you wanted your keg experience once a year, it was always done in a temple to honor a demon or a made-up god. And could Christians do that anymore? And if that's not complicated enough, if you went to the local market, a public outdoor market, all the meat in Corinth had been sacrificed to animals and dedicated to gods earlier that day. So imagine walking through Loblaws, or if you're American, Whole Food, 
and you're trying to get meat for dinner, but you know that what you're buying, that animal, had been slaughtered in a religious ceremony and had already been dedicated to a false god. So here's the question they're all struggling with. Can you eat meat dedicated to idols at the dinner table? Can you go to your friend's wedding and eat meat as a Christian because you know what it's been dedicated to? Can you still go to a feast in a local temple? And what about not being rude as a Christian at a neighbor's home? What's black, what's white, what's gray? Now, some of you are going, oh, John, this is so irrelevant. We've moved on. Well, actually, no. I was 16 years old. I was going to Pickering High School, and I was in a world religion class. And we were walking through all year all different religions. So we studied the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and the Bible, and it was an amazing, interesting place. And there was a few Christians in the class. And one day, the Hindu students in the class decided to teach us about Hinduism and to, to do show and tell well. They brought us a whole meal. Now, I've just told you, I like Indian food. I was excited they were Indian in background. And then they announced to the class, and oh, by the way, this food was not only prepared by our family, it was dedicated to our gods this morning. Now, I'm sitting in the class going, now, what do I do? So I went to the teacher and I asked, could the Christians have a conclave? Could we have a meeting for a moment before we participated? And so the teacher was kind enough to say yes. And there was four of us. There was a Pentecostal, a Brethren, a Baptist, and me. So we gathered together and we said to each other, what are we supposed to do? Because we're Christians and we love God and we don't believe in idolatry. And we had this genuine conversation in Pickering High School in the mid-90s, in those ancient times. And so we pulled out 1 Corinthians 8 and we read it. And some of us ate and some of us didn't. Now back to Corinth. One group of Christians in this ancient church is saying, this isn't a problem. You can eat meat all the time. And the other group is saying, no, no, you can never eat it. The meat is demonically connected. And if you are a Christian, if you eat that meat, you're going to sin against God and you're going to defile your relationship with Jesus himself. So rules versus no rules, the ongoing struggle in every church between legalism, rules not found in God's word that seem right but are not, and the other side is called licentiousness, living with no rules at all, and even breaking God's law when you know it's wrong because God's graceful and he's loving, he'll forgive everything. And Paul says, okay, here we go again. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 reads like this. So now about food sacrifice to idols... We all know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. He says, oh, before we even get to the issue of meat or idols or food, let's just talk about your character. He says, so let's start here. Some of you are actually right on this issue. God agrees with you, and that's saying a lot. But when you're right, and even though the God of heaven and earth agrees with you, do you look like Jesus when you talk about this issue? Oh, you might think you're better. Actually, you actually are biblically right and you know God's very will. But when you are right and you're right thinking, does your right thinking lead you to right action? In other words, does your right thinking lead you to love other Christians? So when you're having the debate over meat, are you marked by biblical love, not emotional love? Are you marked by 1 Corinthians 13? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you not envying? Are you not boasting? Are you not proudful? Are you dishonoring or not dishonoring others? Are you self-seeking when you're in the middle of the debate? Are you easily angered? Are you keeping no record of wrongs? By the way, just as a side note, some of you here today love theology. You love God's word. 
and it's actually part of your gifting and your makeup, but I want to ask you the question, when you talk about theology, are you marked by 1 Corinthians 13? Do you keep no record of wrongs? Are you easily angered or not? See, here's lesson one that Paul already gives us. What a gift. He says, when you are dealing with issues, be marked by love. If you're not marked by love, when you speak, you may win the argument, but you will lose the relationship. You will break church unity, and you could shipwreck someone's faith. Is it worth it? He says, hey, church, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Whoever loves God is known by God. Now, here's his point. He says, we're not all in the same place on the journey towards Jesus and even with Jesus. But let's remember this one truth. We are known by God first. Our love is based on his love towards us. Love must mark us because we've been marked by love already. And we who know better will be tempted to use right and good knowledge as a weapon to hurt fellow Christians. See, that's why Jesus always said, you must speak with grace and truth together. See, grace without truth leads to chaos, false teaching, heresy. Truth without grace leads to broken trust and spiritual abuse. Both are terrible. So Paul says, okay, to the issue. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing in all the world and that there is no God but one. So Paul says this very offensive, very non-multicultural, very anti-pluralistic statement. He says all idols and every religion connected to idolatry is not real. They're fakes, they're frauds, they're made up in the mind of humans or it's demonically inspired. There is only one God. One not some, one not many. There is only one creator, there is only one Lord, there is only one in all of reality who is uncreated God. It was Isaiah the prophet 740 plus years earlier with such power, with such laser-like focus, with prophetic punch, who sarcastically wrote this about idolatry in Isaiah 44.9. Those who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. He says, think about this man. He cuts down a cedar or perhaps he took a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow among the trees of the forest and planted a pine and the rain made it grow and he used it as fuel for burning and some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, he bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat, he eats his fill. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships and prays to it saying, save me, you are my god. And then he says, you, they know nothing they understand nothing. And Paul's saying, oh, absolutely, that's true. But then Paul goes farther. He says, idols are nothing. But then he says, oh, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is something actually going on behind the idols. There is a genuine power source behind them. The idol is made up, but the inspiration is not. And he says in verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords. See, behind the idols are demons. They are not God. They are created, but they are real and they are powerful. And if you just read ahead, and we'll get there in a few weeks, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, here's what he says. Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or an idol is anything? No. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons as Christians. 
So Paul says, idols are fake, demons are real, and then he's basically implying, hey, Christian, if you are now a follower of Jesus, you should not be celebrating or hanging out in temples anymore that are dedicated to evil. But then the church says back to Paul, yeah, yeah, fine about that, but food, what about the food, Paul? Can I have my Swiss chalet chicken dinner that earlier in the day was dedicated to Zeus? Is that a yes or a no? And Paul says, I'm not going to answer that yet. They're like, oh, come on. He's like, no, not yet. Before we get to the issue, I still need to talk to you a little bit more about God and idols and demons. And it is here, right here, that Paul pens one of the most powerful summaries of the whole Christian faith. If you're taking notes for Connect Group, this is what you circle, underline, or you think about. If you're a memorization person, this is what you memorize. He says in verse 6, Yet for us, that's Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is one Lord, but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Okay, so Paul affirms something. He affirms the greatest absolute cry of the Jewish faith found in Deuteronomy 6.4. O hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, and he is Lord and he is God. There's one. But notice that Paul calls him Father. And that means that God is relational. Father, by the way, is not a description alone. It's a name of God. And the name is important. Jesus taught us about the name Father. It means Abba, Daddy. There's a relational love connection. Jesus' own summary about prayer, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here's what Paul says. There is one God. He is loving and he is holy and he is knowable and he is not part of creation. He's the author of creation. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Color, beauty, all we see and sense and experience is not a cosmic mistake. It's not a bang without purpose. It's not an experiment from another alien race. No, God, the great mathematician, God, the great architect, God, the great artist, has created the heavens and the earth. Reality, physical and spiritual, make up existence. So he says, angel, star, whale, tree, sea, sky, billions of stars. God, he's the creator. Now let me read the verse again to you. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from, for whom we live, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now I, have, I don't know if you've caught the massive scandal of this because again, Paul is a trained classic Orthodox Jew and he has just said that there is one Father who is God and then he calls Jesus Christ Lord. In other words, he's saying Jesus is King and, and Lord is only used for God in the Old Testament. And Paul is saying, yes, are you getting it yet? Jesus is one with the Father, equal with the Father. He is God. And so Paul is saying, now you see creation in its totality. Jesus was used by the Father to create reality. This is what John wrote in John 1, 3. Through Jesus, things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. God's creative capacity is expressed through Jesus the world. The word, Jesus, is responsible for the creation of the world. He wasn't created as the most epic sort of created thing. Then he did all this creation. No, Jesus was never created. He's always been and always will be because he is one with the Father. That's why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning in the end. Anyone want to say amen about that? Like, amen. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. And you might be going this morning, okay, fine, I, I, fine. That sort of helps me understand sort of the complication of God. But why is Paul going on and on, droning on and on? Where's the food connection? And Paul says, oh, let me make it for you. 
Number one, I want you to know who God is and who Jesus is. So you're not deceived by idolatry anymore and or by demons. But here's my point. The Father and Jesus made physical reality. Food's part of physical reality and it's good within themselves. In other words, food is not inherently evil. Now at this moment, as this was being read for the first time in the church in Corinth, a whole crowd in that church was going, "Mm mm-hmm, yes. They were having their amen moment. They're saying, yes, Paul agrees with us. Idols are false. Check. There's only one God. Check. Jesus is connected. Check. Food is good. Check. So can we just go ahead and go to Chick-fil-A and Chipotle and move on, please? Could you also, Paul, maybe tell those boo-hoo, holier-than-thou prude to stop yelling at us every time we eat meat? We're wrong. We're right. You're wrong. Right? And Paul says, stop. Not everyone possesses, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone's taken this in yet. Not everyone's worked this out yet. See, this is where it all begins to come home for a Christian. He says, you're given freedom to love each other, not to attack each other. So some of you are more mature, not by age, but in theology. Yes, you're more theologically connected. You're more theologically integrated. And others are weaker and younger, and they don't get it all yet. And then Paul outlines, he says, you know, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificially, sacrificial food, they think of it having sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So every time they're eating that meat, it's like they're being pulled back into worshiping demons and idols, and they can't separate the meat deal from evil. So when they take a bite of meat, it's like they're bowing down to Eve all over again. They feel like they're sinning, and they're actually defiling Jesus and abandoning the new faith. So you that are older in the faith, don't lose it. Don't say, well, I'm free in Jesus to do what I want, so shut up and grow up. No. Actually, if you're a real mature Christian, you're more concerned about your fellow Christian. And here's the line for Twitter. Love and unity limits freedom. Love and unity limits freedom. He's saying, you understand, right? You could lead this younger Christian to sin to literally break God's heart and love, to damage their relationship with God, you, you, you wouldn't want to do that because you're supposedly free in Jesus, would you? He says, let me just clear this up. Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better if we do. Defilement is located not in the food, but in your own mind. Now, let me just take a moment to clarify this, because some of you are like, I still don't see how this is relevant. It's going to get relevant real quick. First of all, Paul is reminding us that there are debatable things like food. But he is not talking about things that are not debatable. There are things that are never redeemable. You can never redeem a pornographic magazine. It can never be used for the kingdom. You can never redeem a tarot card. It will always connect you to evil. You cannot redeem these things. Certain things are neutral. Certain things are not. And Paul says, though you have freedom and though you are right, be careful, however, that you exercise your rights, as you exercise your rights, they do not become a stumbling block to the weak person. A stumbling block is something carelessly left around which causes people to fall over it. So if you're a parent or a grandparent this morning, I want you to imagine the moment you stepped on Lego lately. Anyone remember how wonderful that feels? 
And what Paul is saying, it's like you mature Christians think you're so free, you're just throwing Lego everywhere and all these immature, narrow Christians keep stepping on it. You're causing all, it's like you're sticking your foot out in freedom and they're falling over. Just because you're right doesn't mean you have the right to act. Remember, love means giving up your rights for others. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll, that famed preacher from the States, painted it this way. He says, I want you to picture a brand new Christian carefully trying to discern what's appropriate for a believer and what's not and taking their cues from a mature believer. Now picture a reckless Christian who frequently drinks to the point of maybe getting drunk and defends his or her choice as freedom in Christ. The reckless example is set a trap, a stumbling block for the new Christian. So Paul says to the pro-meat, pro-freedom in Jesus group, actually, you all are right on this meat deal. The meat is fine by itself, but actually there's a problem with you too. So you're cheering, but now you're not going to cheer so much. I hear that you're still eating this meat in places dedicated to idols and demons. The food doesn't matter, but the place you're doing it sure does. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to the idol's? So what you do matters, and where you do, it matters. You, you might actually lead another Christian to fall. So they're walking down the street, and they see you having your keg experience over in that, 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 that temple, and, and they go, well, maybe it's not that bad. So you're going back to dedicated places, which actually might lead them back to dedicated places, which will lead them, maybe not you, but them to gluttony, sexual morality, idol worship, and demons. But there's more. Paul's saying you've got to be careful what you do in public, but also what in the world are you doing now in a place dedicated to demons? And he says, I'm going to deal with this later. And then he says, so this week, brother or sister, for whom Christ died, whoa, very strong language, has just been destroyed by your knowledge, your freedom. He says, oh, I just want to remind you, Jesus died for the person you have no time for. Uh, Jesus literally thought of them by name and took the fa God the Father's appropriate wrath and took all of sin, their sin and yours and all of ours. And Jesus personally faced down the devil for that person over there. And so what? You want to destroy them? You want to knock them down and raise their new faith to the ground? You want to demolish their Christian faith because you have freedom in Jesus? You all remember the movie Titanic from a few years ago? We all watched it. It was epic. We cried. We laughed. She had the diamond. She threw it. We screamed fine. It's one thing to watch a movie. It's another thing to live it. Can you imagine being a person on that boat for real? Can you imagine being someone, a parent with children, as that boat is going down? It's one thing to watch something in a movie. It's another thing to live it. And here is the extreme language that Paul uses. And let me make the connection. He's saying, don't you understand that so many of you that are mature Christians are like the iceberg. And you are literally wrecking and sinking and shipwrecking and destroying young Christians' faith because you think your freedom is more important than their eternity. Wow. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience and you sin personally against Jesus. Therefore, if what I eat causes a brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause them to fall. Paul dealing with the meat issue and the food issue actually in a reverse way with the Jews and Romans 14, 19 said it this way, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. 
We're called to build up the common life. We are called in freedom to ask the question, by what am I do, by what I am doing, am I helping the church or not? Let me give you an example where this wasn't followed. Two of the most famous Christians during the Victorian era in Britain were two gentlemen, two famed preachers. One was Charles Spurgeon. Anyone heard of his name before? One of the greatest preachers who's ever lived. And another guy maybe you haven't heard about who you should name Joseph Parker. Both, as one wrote, were mighty preachers of the gospel. Now, early in their ministries, they were friends. And not only were they friends, they actually exchanged pulpits, which is a big deal. But suddenly later in life, they had a disagreement. And the reports of the disagreement got into the newspapers. Not good. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he was attending the theater. So all of you at AMC later today, you're all sinners, right? Okay. Now, what he was talking about the theater, it's like the theater like downtown. Interestingly enough, though, Spurgeon smoked cigars. A practice many believers would condemn. In fact, on one occasion, one person asked Spurgeon about his cigars, and Spurgeon responded, well, I don't smoke them in, in excess. And the person said, well, what do you mean by excess? And he responded in a braggadocious, prideful way, well, I don't smoke more than two at a time. So who was right? Perhaps neither, perhaps both. Better yet, it would be best to understand that the two could disagree on this and be still in the will of God and still be profound for the kingdom. Both of them were immature. Both of them defiled the reputation of Jesus by letting this get into the newspapers. Immaturity. Now, for some of you sitting here today, some of you in Bowmanville, Port Perry, listening online, you're a weaker Christian. And it's okay. doesn't mean you're lesser. You're just weaker. And if you let these non-essential issues fester in you, or you talk about it all the time with your family or in your connect group, or you're always on social media, always causing unity in Jesus, by the way, it never works. If you are moving questionable things or cultural things and making them absolute and spiritual, you will always bring dishonor to Jesus and disunity and mutual distrust. You will be responsible for the breakup of the community. And you who are strong, if you're flaunting your freedom, it's the same problem. Jesus, of course, is our greatest example. One person reflecting on this passage just wrote these words. The son gave voluntarily. There was a voluntary self-renunciation and self-abasement. The most entitled person in history gave up his fight for us. See, that's powerful. So here's the question all today. What do we do with this very old, very ancient, yet incredibly relevant passage? As I've been speaking, what's been bubbling up? What questions are emerging? What is Jesus saying to you personally? What is Jesus saying to our church well, the first thing I always think about is this. What about manipulation? Like, do we have to spend our lives being manipulated by weaker Christians who just can't handle the truth? One pastor said this, does, does this mean that mature Christians have to continually exist in a prison constructed by the feeble sensibilities of weaker Christians? No. doesn't need to happen. He says, well, you say, well, how do I do that? Easy. He says, protect your privacy, choose your environment. No one says you have to surround yourself with weak people of faith your whole life. And when you find yourself, he writes, in their company, voluntarily 
Set aside your liberty for a time. It's a mistake that you think you can loosen people up by flaunting your freedom. People find it incredibly difficult to learn when they're offended. Anyone? (laughs) Instead, create a teachable moment by deferring to their weaker preference, ease the crisis, and a little bit later, a few well-placed questions might help. In other words, there are always going to be weaker Christians in the church, those who ebb towards legalism. And when you're with them, hang out and celebrate in Jesus, but don't flaunt your stuff. But a little bit later, you're going to have to have a chat with them and see where that goes. Now, many of you are asking, okay, John, uh, what, what is the equivalence? Like, what's food to idols for us today? Well, let me answer. It's probably food to idols. See, so many of us actually come from families and backgrounds where our family or friends or neighbors or coworkers are actually involved in other faiths or made-up faiths or spirituality, and we are going to be confronted by the fact, what do we do in certain situations? What's allowable and what's not? And this is going to be incredibly helpful. Many of you who come from Chinese background, is it okay to get the little red bag to honor your ancestors? Is that worshiping them or is it respecting them? These are major questions. What can you eat? What can you not eat? But there are also multiple non-formal religious expressions of this. And if you've done church more than three weeks, it's relevant to you. One of the biggest things that is an equivalent to this is secondary theology. Beyond the essentials of our faith, the virgin birth, the authority of scripture, the existence of heaven and hell, Jesus being God and human, etc. Christians fundamentally disagree with each other on issues. Are you shocked? (laughs) Women in ministry, spiritual gifts, how spiritual conflict happened, the nature of healing, communion, church government. Now, these issues can be debated and genuinely looked at and defended out of the scriptures. So let me give you an example this morning. I'm not an Anglican, and I'm not a Pentecostal. I think the Anglicans got baptism dead wrong, and I think Pentecostals got tongues dead wrong. And I even speak in tongues. But when they say everyone's got to do it, I got problems. Now, let me be very clear. Are my Anglican or Pentecostal brothers and sisters lesser than me? No. Do I love them? Absolutely. Why do we pray for another church every week from this stage and every stage that you're at? Why do we work together? Why do we do the Alpha Camp? Because these are secondary issues. I love them. I work them. Some of my best friends are Anglicans and Pentecostals. Do I think they're wrong? Yes. I think in heaven they'll realize that. They say the same thing about me. But the point is this, here at C4, we will preach strongly and convict and with conviction what we genuinely believe on secondary issues, unapologetically, but we will never harm or spit on or look down upon our friends who we disagree with because they are family and they worship the same Jesus and the same Father and the same Holy Spirit that we do. And so... Here's the great essence, what Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So in secondary theology, we make decisions here. And if you're joining C4, this is where we're heading. But let me say this to you. When we start elevating secondary issues and making them primary, it's idle and meet time all over again. And by the way, I don't think we have enough time to fight with each other anymore. We have bigger things to get on with. But... Here's what's happening on the blogosphere in the reverse, and this is why I need to spend time with this. You can't use 1 Corinthians 8 to excuse and call everything secondary. You all clapped because it's a very Canadian right thing to do, 
But now what's happening is people are using 1 Corinthians 8 to say, well, actually everything's secondary and we don't really know what truth is. No, actually the Bible is pretty clear on mm, lots of things. So please don't use 1 Corinthians 8 to get away with sin. I mean, what has Paul said so far? Just in the first eight chapters, murder is always wrong. Theft is always wrong. Extramarital affairs, incest, premarital sex, adultery, one-night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestialities, or uh, orgies, pride, suing Christians without attempting to reconcile, idolatry and divorce in multiple directions, not all directions, but multiple, is always wrong, period, black and white. So don't use 1 Corinthians 8 to go, well, you know, we just don't know. Actually, there is only one God. All idols are false. But then here's the other end of it. Don't say things are black and white when they're gray. So you're like, okay, John, well, what's a gray issue? Alcohol. See, some of you have actually come from a background where you can't handle alcohol. You are an alcoholic, or you used to come from a party lifestyle or a family that was marked by that. So for you... Alcohol is dangerous. For many other people here, alcohol is not a problem at all. Going to bars is not a problem at all. And there's freedom. So here's the great question. If the people who struggle with say it's always a sin, that's wrong. If people who can deal with alcohol flaunt it in front of people who struggle with it, that's wrong. Same with, thing with tobacco. Do I think it's wise to smoke? No, I think it's really quite stupid. I mean, look at the pack. It's not good. But... Would I say that my pastor friends who smoke cigars or pipes every once in a while are sinning against the triune God? I would not. Fashion. If it's trendy, it's worldly. Well, yeah, but what, you used to, what you're wearing now used to be trendy, so now it's ugly or not. Like, what? Stop. Just stop. I also love in church culture, what you wear to church becomes an issue. I, a few years ago, we had a woman come into our community from a much more traditional background. She was greeted well, and that was great, and she came in, and she survived the music, which was great. And then I got up, and I was wearing jeans. And she was devastated that a man of God would dare ever do this. So as she was leaving, a very wise usher stopped her. And they had a conversation and he said, I understand that you come from a culture and a background and a church tradition where you wear your Sunday best because you want to give God your best. And the woman's like, yeah, that's right. He said, but what you don't understand is John doesn't dress like that so everyone feels welcome here. And John in his mind dresses down because dressing up is not unauthentic, but it's actually not him. By dressing down, he feels like he's being more authentic to God. So who's right? Both of us. In other words, bring the pearls and the hat and the dress and the white hanky and the jeans. Let's all meet Jesus together. Because Jesus cares about the what? Eternal things, not the external things. Critical. Critical. Another one is Bible translations. Oh, I like the King James, the ESV, the NIV. It's just shh. I have a really good suggestion for everyone. Read it and obey it. Just obey it. We in North America are like churches sitting at a large buffet arguing on who's got the better dish and there are thousands of people groups around the world who our brothers and sisters are part of who don't have any Bible translation in their language and we're arguing that our Kung Pao is better and they're like, I just want anything to eat. So everyone be quiet, read your Bible, obey it, and let's keep working so every person on earth can have a translation of the good news of Jesus and the absolute preparation of the Old Testament for Jesus in their own language. Sports. 
What an interesting day to talk about sports. Right? Super Bowl, whatever that is. Competitive. Eh. Competitive, sinful, ego-exalting, calling, fun job. Just be careful. Don't over-spiritualize this. Music. Oh, music. Old hymns, new hymns, choirs, no choirs, liturgical, free-willing, transitional, transitional, contemporary, cutting-edge. Look, we all know that music style comes and goes, and every church has to make a decision. When I preached on this a few years ago, I quoted the very famous philosopher Homer Simpson, and I want to do it again. And he was arguing with the greater philosopher, his father, Abe Simpson. He wrote these words, you wouldn't understand, Dad, you're not with it. Abe Simpson said, well, I used to be with it. Then they changed what it was. Now what, what I am isn't with it, and what it is seems weird and scary to me. And then Abe says to his son, but don't worry, it's going to happen to you too. <laughs> Here's what we need to get. Don't ever spiritualize music. You'll end up sinning. Worship in musical style is chosen. And it's amazing how every time I have interactions about music style, it's amazing to me that the theological criticism about the music style always lines up with the taste of the person. We've chosen a style here. It's not right or wrong. It's not better or worse. It is. We're okay with it. This is what we do. Last, last Saturday, I was preaching in Toronto at this amazing convention. I was with the Toronto Mass Choir. It was epic. They were unbelievable. Completely different style. Did I find Jesus there? Yes. Was it an amazing experience? Yes. Is it my favorite style of worship? Actually, no, it's not. Would I go to a church like that every week? No. If it was the only church in Toronto, absolutely I would because Jesus is being worshipped. Don't spiritualize worship preference. It's an idol and meat issue. And the amazing thing we have in this region is there are so many churches with so many styles you actually get to choose. Money. Be real careful how you talk about money. One person wrote it like this. Hey, stop me if I'm wrong, George, but it uh, seems like you've been spending a lot of time on, and money on your car. George says, no, I'm fine. Well, don't you think that money could go better in the leprosy fund? See, that never goes well. Just be unbelievable. You have no clue what George is doing. You have no clue their motive behind their money. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be middle class. Listen, here's the point. Money is not evil. What we do with it can be evil. Don't judge people based on wealth. Pray that all of us obey the Lord Jesus towards tithing and giving generously. Let me talk about social media. The new battleground over this issue is social media. Many of you, knowingly or not, are flaunting your freedom and you never think, think about weaker Christians what you're, when you're posting. So number one, let me just advise you, don't argue on social media. It never ends well. Second, ask yourself this question if you're a Christian. Oh, by the way, I really need everyone's attention. Like this actually really matters at this moment. Ask yourself the question, what I'm posting right now in word or in picture is this a gray area that could lead a new Christian or a weaker Christian to their destruction? Be careful where you post and be careful what you post. Because unlike someone walking by a temple now, it's to the world. You say, what's an example? Stop posting your alcohol, please, on social media as a Christian. Just stop it. It's unwise. It's, un it's not wrong, it's unwise. Why is it unwise? Because you have no clue who's watching. And what does Paul say? If they see you doing that, they actually might say, well, maybe it's not that bad, but it is bad for them. 
In other words, choose your environment and choose your privacy. What you do on social media matters, not only as a witness to Jesus Christ, it matters because so many weak Christians might actually be tempted by your freedom. Be very wise. Let me end here. Some of you are in Bowmanville like, wow, this is my first message. Yep, welcome, we're glad you're here. Here's, here's the bottom line. Jesus loves us desperately as a church. He's brought us all together and he, he loves all the other churches that we don't get along with too. And the only option we have is to accept each other. You know, God is the one who elects and calls people. I don't have any say. My only say is I get to live with you and you get to live with me and we're supposed to love and serve each other. One pastor just very simply wrote these words. Be determined never to be a source of stumbling. Always that, have that in front of you. Second, live as a citizen of the kingdom. Consecrate on those eternal things rather than the external things. Third, actively pursue what benefits Christians. And fourth, do everything you do with a clear conscience. If you can't do something with a clear conscience, even if it's gray, then don't do it. Because for you, it actually might actually affect your relationship with God and not another. Does that make sense with everyone? Lots of stuff to think of. So as you go to your connect groups this week, we want you to talk through your experiences. What may be gray? What's black and white? Where have you experienced this? But together, do you see why this matters? Because this is a matter of evangelism, worship, unity, and togetherness. So could we, could we just do this? Could we all stand? Could you stand up in Port Perry? Could you stand at Bowmanville? And could we just ask God to keep leading us really well in this? Lord... Such ancient words. <laughs> Such an unexpected fight, meat. But actually, this has torn your church apart so many times. So here's our prayer. Number one, Lord, help us to obey what is clear. Help the Lordship of Jesus Christ to grow in this church. If something is wrong, help us to repent and say no, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, sacrifice for Jesus. If it's gray... Help us to learn to love each other and to work it through and have honest conversation. Help us who are more mature never to, on purpose or by mistake, flaunt our freedom. Lord Jesus, help C4 to be bound by love. And we end here. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have delivered us from the grip of demons and the vanity and the hollowness of our idols. Thank you that we can stand here today and say we're free. That is why we believe that you are so good. Lord, keep working this out, we ask. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we all sit together. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.